So for Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter Sunday, we're not in Ephesians. We're not in Ephesians. We are going to look at some other very important passages. And today we find ourselves in Zechariah. Zechariah, you find this on page 944 in the Bibles provided in the chairs. It's amazing. Everything that Jesus does, it was already written about. Isn't that something? Literally, Jesus, through his life, through his death on the cross, his resurrection, and his second coming, it's nothing new. It was all prophesied about. It was all told about in the Old Testament. Jesus, throughout his life, said that he was fulfilling all things. He was fulfilling all the prophecies. Everything that God said, Jesus was showing would come true. So here's another example. Here's another example where we go back in the Old Testament to a passage that Jesus himself quotes from while he's living it out to show that he is fulfilling Scripture, that he is fulfilling prophecy. So here we see another one of these important prophecies of the Old Testament that point to Jesus. So we're going to be looking at Zechariah chapter 9. And I'm just going to be reading from verse 9 through 12. Verse 9 through 12. Zechariah chapter 9, starting at verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you. Righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, O prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. Let us go to God in prayer. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you reveal to us your truth, your love, your grace, who you are. Father, we pray that you will guide us in this time. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, you'd give us wisdom and discernment to know your truth. Father, we pray that your Son, Jesus Christ, would be lifted up and that we would seek your glory now. 
In Christ's wonderful name, amen. We see where Zechariah is a prophet and he is prophesying to God's people. And he's making something very clear. He's giving them a promise. He's giving them a promise. And the promise has to do with God's faithfulness to his covenantal promises. God's faithfulness to his covenantal promises. And that's very important because the people of God have broken their covenantal promises. They have been unfaithful. They have rebelled against God. God gave them His law. And they said, we would rather obey our sinful desires than your law. God comes to them and says, He is the only true God. And God's people again and again have said, we would rather settle for the gods of the peoples around us or gods that we have made with our own hands or in our own minds than you. So they've rebelled against God. They rebelled against His law. They've rebelled against Him. And when God gives warning, they either think it doesn't apply to them because of some sense of privilege or entitlement, or they mockingly dismiss it. So we see where God brings His full, just wrath against His people. Jerusalem is destroyed. And the people are taken into captivity. And they are dispersed throughout all the nations. But that isn't the end of the story. And that's what Zechariah lifts up. Even though God's people have been unfaithful, They've been rebellious. They've broken God's law. They have rebelled against Him. Even though they have broken their promises, God is always faithful to His covenant promises. So we're going to see here in this passage of Scripture where Zechariah is going to say, because God is faithful in His covenant promises, He will do what his people could not do. We're going to see where it's lifted up here that God not only is going to keep his covenantal promise, but he is going to send one who will also keep the covenant for the side of his people. God is going to keep both sides of the covenant because only he truly can. So in this, we're going to see a representative. We're going to see a promise of a Messiah, a promise of a king, a promise of a coming one who will come and do what we could not do on our behalf for us, for God's people. So it's a beautiful promise. And in this promise of... Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 12, we see the promise of the gospel. We see the gospel. So he starts in verse 9. Verse 9, and this is a powerful, powerful command. 
where it says to rejoice. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Here we see where God is giving the invitation. He's putting out there that you can rejoice. You can celebrate. You can shout for joy and lift up God's praise and lift up thanksgiving to him. And this is an amazing statement. Because this is told to a people who have become a shame, who have become a disgrace, who have become an expression of God's just judgment against sin and disobedience. So this is an amazing thing where the prophet, God is speaking through the prophet, and God is saying, you do not have to weep and wail in your shame and disgrace and brokenness anymore. Here we see where God is giving them the greatest reason they could ever have joy. The greatest reason they could ever shout for joy and thanksgiving and praise. He's giving them a reason to hope, a reason to love, a reason to live, and a reason to have full happiness and blessing and goodness. So this is important. This is important. And we see that where this joy, where this rejoicing, where this thanksgiving is centered is not in their own ability. It's not in what they can do. It's certainly not in what they did. What they did, all that did was accumulate to them judgment and shame. And it's not in what they can do. They'll just continue the pattern of brokenness if it's based on their own power and ability. No, God is giving them the reason they can shout for joy. And it's in this coming King. This is where He places all their hope, all their joy, all their peace, all their security, everything is in this coming King. This is very important. Because when you read through the Old Testament, you find so many of God's people placing their hope, their peace, their security in everything but God. And all it does is end in disaster. Ruin. That's the pattern. That's what you see. So God is focusing them, and He's focusing a people who have a long history of seeing the consequences of their sin ending in disaster and ruin. And He's saying, But let me show you the one place you can place all your hope, all your peace, all your desire all your security, and it's in one person. One person. You can focus it all there. Because this coming king will never fail you. Never fail you. And that's important. Because all of us have placed some degree of hope or security in another person. And did that person ever fail you? I think so. I think so. 
to some degree. And the reason why is they are human like you are. So this is amazing. We have this person who's lifted up as being one who will never fail us, that we can put all our hope, all our security, all our peace in this person. So this person must be more, must be more than just human. This coming king must not only be fully human, but also fully divine. And that's what we're going to see starting to be developed in this promise, this prophecy. We're seeing in this prophecy the promise of the incarnation. We're seeing in this prophecy the promise of the coming king who will be the substitute on our behalf. The one who will bring us salvation and hope. A wonderful parallel passage to Zechariah chapter 9 is Ezekiel 39. Ezekiel 39. I just want to read two verses from this section. It explains why God brought his judgment and how God is bringing about his promise of salvation for his people. So Ezekiel 39. Ezekiel 39, starting at verse 28. And it's then they shall know. He's talking about his people, the Israelites, the ones to whom he gave the covenants and the promises and the prophets and his word, uh, the ones who disobeyed, the ones to whom he brought judgment. He destroyed Jerusalem. He scattered amongst the nations. So here we see the promise, verse 28. Then they shall know that I am the Lord their God, because I sent them into exile among the nations. So that's the judgment part. But did God leave them there? No. And then assembled them into their own land. God speaks about this returning to the land. I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore. And here's what's powerful. Verse 29. Verse 29. And I will not hide my face anymore from them. There it is. I will not hide my face anymore from them. When the Jerusalem was going to be destroyed, then the temple destroyed, God's presence left the temple before that happened. His presence left the temple as a sign of God bringing his full wrath and judgment against the people. And in that, earlier in Ezekiel 39, it talks about the greatest expression of God bringing his judgment against his disobedient people was he turns his face away from them. That's a powerful, powerful judgment. Is if God turns his face away from you, that means he isn't listening He has turned away that you would just receive full judgment and consequence. No more grace. No more more love. 
But that's what's powerful about verse 29. He says this, And I will hide my face no more. I will not hide my face anymore. No more will God hide His face from them. And at this point, this them isn't just talking about the elect of the Jewish nation or the Israelites. This would be the elect of all people, every nation, every tribe and language. And that's what Zechariah is going to get to, is this king isn't just king for the believing Jews, but he is going to be king for believing Gentiles. Because there's going to be one kingdom and one Lord and one Savior and one people and one church. But verse 29, and I will not hide my face anymore from them when, when I pour my spirit, here it is, upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. So through the pouring of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will come and we see a promise of a new covenant. We see a new people. Where there's no longer Jew or Gentile, there's no longer free or slave, there's no longer barbarian, Scythian, Greek, there's, it doesn't matter what language, tribe, people, nation, that the Holy Spirit will create one new people, one body, and we see the promise laid out here. But what's so amazing is, how is it? This is the big question of Scripture. Why is it that God will not hide his face anymore from them? Does that mean that God's people will become perfect? Does that mean that they will no longer sin as they sinned before? No. So how is it God can promise forgiveness? Sin must be punished. God is just. God cannot be just and just overlook sin. Sin has to be punished. So this touches upon this great, great question that comes out in the Old Testament. How can a righteous and good God forgive sinners? How? The wages of sin is death. Yet here we see in Ezekiel 39 where God says that he is going to do something, and because of that, he will not hide his face from his people anymore. And his Holy Spirit will be poured in them, and they will be his loved children, that he will never, ever forsake or bring judgment against again. So what happens? What happens? And what happens is the king. You go back to Zechariah verse 9. Shout for joy. Your king is coming. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you. And here's, here's the prophecy. Your king comes to you. Righteous. And having salvation is he. There it is. So this king, how he's going to accomplish this, that by his coming, God will not turn his face away from his people anymore, that he will look on them 
no longer as sinners and rebels, but as his beloved children who have forgiveness and love and peace. How is it? It's because this kingdom in righteousness. There it is. Righteousness. Oh, if you read about the kings of Israel in the north or Judah in the south, you read about the kings, what becomes the dominant trait of these kings? Unrighteousness. Unrighteousness. So here there's this promise of a king who will come and be perfectly righteous. Perfectly righteous. No sin, no disobedience, nothing wrong. So here we see that this king is lifted up as a righteous king. Isaiah 32 says this, Isaiah 32.1, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness. Finally, one will come, this king will come, who will perfectly, faithfully obey all of God's law and perfectly, faithfully live in obedience to God in perfect righteousness. What God's people never could do and what we never can do. Perfect righteousness. And because of this righteousness, he will have salvation. He's a saving king. He's a saving king because he's a righteous king. And here you see developed in this prophecy in Zechariah, this prophecy of the coming king, the understanding of substitution, the understanding of atonement, that because of his righteousness, he will be able to go to the cross, to take our sin, to bear the wrath that we deserve so that we can receive forgiveness and grace and love. The only reason Jesus Christ is a saving king is because he's a righteous king, perfectly righteous. But what's so amazing about this depiction of this king, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, he's a righteous king, having salvation, he's a saving king, is because he is a humble king. And this is the most amazing moment of Palm Sunday. He is a humble king. Here we see the king mounted on a donkey, on a colt, a foal of a donkey. And this is where we see Jesus. And Jesus speaks of this prophecy that he's fulfilling it as he enters into Jerusalem. He enters in with the people waving the palm fronds, shouting Hosanna to the highest, proclaiming that Jesus is the descendant of David, the Messiah, the promised one. They're placing their hope they're placing their peace. They're placing their security in Him and His coming kingdom. They're shouting and proclaiming these things. But there's no indication that any of them understood what it meant that He was a humble king. He was a humble king. Jesus can only be a saving king if he is a righteous king, and if he will humble himself 
to the point of death, even death on the cross. And that's what Philippians says. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 7, says, But he, this is Jesus Christ, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. Here's the fulfillment of this prophecy of Zechariah. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even. It's one of the most powerful little words and understatements in all of Scripture. Even death on a cross. The most shameful, humiliating death that the Roman government could come up with. But more than that, that death on the cross, far more troubling to Jesus than nails or thorns or pain or suffocation was the fact that he would be receiving God's holy, just wrath on himself. And that is what he prayed about with sweat coming from his forehead in the garden before going to the cross. It was that he would be drinking the full cup of God's judgment. But because of this, verse 9 of Philippians 2, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So here we have a king who humbles himself to the most sacrificial, suffering, servant death on behalf of his people. He gives up everything and because of his perfect righteousness and obedience god the father lifts him up to the highest place he's the king of kings he is the lord of lords he is above everyone and everything So you see how powerful this prophecy of Zechariah is. It captures everything that is the gospel. We are sinners. We need a righteousness that is outside of ourselves because we can never be righteous enough to have God not turn his face away from us. But when you believe in Jesus Christ and have faith, his righteousness is given to you. And then you have that promise that God will then look at you as his beloved child forever. Your sins have been forgiven. They've been removed. They've been cleansed. They've been taken away from you. Jesus is the righteous king. He is the saving king. And he is the humble king. If you go on in this prophecy, you see in verse 10, verse 10 of Zechariah 9, it says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off. This is a beautiful promise. 
what it's saying here is this king, not only is he righteous, not only is he bringing salvation, and he's doing this in the most humble way anyone could imagine, he's going to win victory over all your enemies. Your enemies will be defeated. And this is the powerful promise for us. This is where we see that in Jesus Christ, if we believe in him and die in him and are raised with him to new life, we see where Jesus gives us victory over sin. He gives us victory over the devil. He gives us victory over the world. And ultimately, what was the last one he defeated? Death itself. Victory over death. So just as this prophecy is speaking to the people of Israel about God returning them to the land and and enabling them to come back and cutting off their enemies, ultimately this is for us where our enemies sin, the devil, our fallen flesh, are defeated in Jesus Christ so that we can begin to live new lives for His glory and His honor. And again, God does this because of His faithfulness. And this is verse 11. Verse 11. As for you also. This is beautiful. As for you also. Because just before this, God gave this promise. This promise that not only would he cut off the chariots and the horses and the battle bow, but in verse 10 at the end of it, he shall speak peace to the nations. To the nations. This is showing where this king, this coming king, is not only king of the Jews, but he's king of all God's people. Every nation, every tribe. And how do we know this? His rule shall be from sea to sea, from river, from the river to the ends of the earth. Now that's far larger than what was promised to Abraham. Abraham was promised from sea to sea, to river, to a fixed place of the promised land. But this coming king, his kingdom will be to the ends of the earth. He's king of everything. Everyone. He's over everything. That's why we can bring this gospel message to anyone, everywhere, wherever we go on the earth, because he's the king. And his promise is for all those who will believe. But as we see in verse 11, this is based in God's will and his plan and his faithfulness. Verse 11, as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. It's a beautiful promise. A beautiful promise, and it speaks of the blood. This righteous king, this saving king, is the humble king who will shed his own blood. As Isaiah 53 says, it pleased God to crush him. To slaughter him. And we see Jesus Christ who will be the lamb slain. You even see this in 
the book of Revelation, when you read Revelation and, and you see the images of Jesus, it talks about the mighty lion of Judah. You're seeing this and you're ready to, and you're ready for the, the camera angle to turn and you're ready to see this, this giant lion ready to pounce with a roar that shakes the earth. And it speaks of the lion of Judah and all his power and strength and the, and the angle turns in Revelation. And what do you see? You see a lamb who had been slain. Those two images are the same person. The mighty king, the lion of Judah, who was the humble king, the lamb that was slain. So it's the blood of the covenant. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, God says that he will save his people, not because of them, but because of him. Because of him. Because of his love, his grace, and his plan. I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Hebrews 9, as always, I take you there, is the best place if you want to understand this concept, the covenants by blood. Hebrews 9, verse 18, it says, Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. Oh, blood is all over the place in the Old Testament. Blood is just slung all over everything. Here we have this image of Moses. And he's consecrating the people. And is just blood, blood, blood. Verse 19. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. Here's Moses. He's sprinkling the book and then he's going down the line, all the people, and he's putting his brush in there and flinging this blood on the people. Isn't that something? He's flinging this blood on the people. All over them. All over everything. Did that blood make the people impure? Complete opposite. It was a symbolism of them becoming pure and cleansed. Because of the blood. Verse 20 saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way he sprinkled with the blood, both the tent, he's flinging it on the tent, and all the vessels used in worship, blood is just flung all over everything. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And here's the key thing. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So if you're somewhere, someone of the Israelites in that Old Testament situation of the first covenant, and you're there and Moses comes by and he's flinging the blood on you and flinging the blood. If you stood there and said, I I don't, that's icky. Or that's going to mess up my suit, right? I just, I don't want to have any part of this. And you, and you kind of pull yourself aside. Uh, don't, don't sprinkle me, Moses. What's the consequence of that? Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. 
So it's the same thing for each and every one of us. Ultimately, do you believe and trust that this righteous, that this saving, that this humble king died on the cross for you and that you must be covered in his blood to be saved? Do you believe that? Do you trust that? Is that all your hope and security and peace? Is that the blood of Jesus the Lamb, the King, was shed and has covered you completely? Every sin, every wrongdoing. It's a bloody salvation. Thanks be to God, it's Jesus who sheds His blood so that our blood is not required of us. You see this promise of prisoners being set free, and then verse 12, where God says, return. This is the ultimate fulfillment of why he says they can shout for joy. They can return. Verse 12, return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. I love that expression, prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. Whoa, God is generous. He doesn't just make you right with what you had before. It's double. This is like Job. Remember Job? Everything is taken from him. He's lost everything. He's restored way beyond what he had before. This is a beautiful statement. And this is ultimately the call of the gospel is this. Whatever sin we are holding on to that we continue to hold on to thinking that it that it you know it, it gives us something that we just really want we really desire that that we need whatever whatever that sin is that we still we just have our hands grasped onto and and no matter how good we've gotten at kind of hiding it or or covering it up or keeping it in a, in a secret place so no one else can see. Whatever that sin is that we, we still cling on to, God is saying here, get rid of it. You are settling for something that is far less than the tremendous bounty and blessing that is extended to you in Jesus Christ. Why settle for something that is destroying when God is offering blessings beyond our comprehension? Pay us back double. And this is part of our evangelistic call. This is why we proclaim the prophecy of Zechariah Nine, to those who are lost, who don't believe, we tell them, whatever you think you have in this life without Jesus Christ, it, it doesn't compare to what you would have in Jesus Christ. It doesn't even compare. That's why the Apostle Paul considered his life before Christ as rubbish, garbage, waste, compared to the surpassing glory that he had received in Jesus Christ. 
So when God says here in verse 12, return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope, today I declare that I will restore to you double. You can... That's why you have Jesus tell these stories like the man who found the treasure in the field and he went and sold everything else he had to buy that one field. He gave up everything else because he knew that if he had that one treasure, he'd have more than anything else he had in his life. So that's my encouragement to you as we enter into Holy Week, as we approach Good Friday and Easter Sunday. That's my prayer for each and every one of us. That we will remember Jesus as the righteous King, as the saving King, as the humble King, as the King of kings, Lord of lords, not only of the church, but every person, every place of all time. But that we will realize that what we have in Jesus Christ is far more than anything the world, the devil, or our fallen flesh could ever offer us. Don't settle for anything less than all the goodness found in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your grace and your goodness. Father, we pray that you will help us, that you will help us to Proclaim your Son, Jesus Christ, as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, we pray that you will help us to shout for joy and rejoice this entire week, knowing that you have provided a Savior and that you love us and you care for us. Because of your Son, Jesus Christ, you will never turn your face away from your children. That is our hope, and that is our security. In Christ's wonderful name, amen.